The alcohol is slightly discolored as I peer into the glass jar that holds a mystery. Its reddish-brown skin is full of wrinkles, its eyes tell the stories of past ancestors, and its fingers seem to reach out and touch us. Some call these creatures mudcats, devil dogs, snout otters, or the most well-known name, hellbenders. No matter what you call them, this hellbender specimen was collected by park scientists over 90 years ago and falls in a long line of collected specimens in our natural history collections that are helping preserve and protect the park in the present and the future. Wait a second. So you're telling me that the park has a hellbender specimen dating back to the 1930s? Uh, cue the scary music, please. <clears throat> yes. But that is just the tip of the iceberg, my friend. Okay, and by tip you mean... Well, although intriguing, this hellbender is not the only specimen in the park's museum collections. There are thousands of specimens, and I mean thousands, that have been collected since the park opened in the 1930s. Wow. Well, I guess that makes sense, but walk me through why it's so important to keep abundant or extinct specimens in our natural history collections. Or maybe an even better question is, why is it important to collect specimens at all? You know, that is a good question. And I think I have a couple people in mind that can help us answer these questions. Welcome to Smoky Signal, a show about the science behind the Smokies, brought to you by Great Smoky Mountains National Park and produced in the depths of our natural and cultural museum collections. This season, we'll be exploring three stories on the theme of collections. We'll be talking about renewing traditional plant gathering practices, a natural history museum that has collected thousands of species, and even the collection of something pretty stinky in the name of science. I'm Antoine. And I'm Alex. Stay with us. Although intriguing, this hellbender is not the only specimen in the park's museum collections. Since the 1930s, researchers and scientists have dedicated countless hours throughout the depths of the park in the effort to understand the biodiversity of this living laboratory, leading our imaginations down the inquisitory yet exploratory path to smoky science. From the Tennessee Mad Time catfish that was thought to be extinct to the recovery plan of the Rusty Patch Bumblebee, the park has a myriad of specimens that continue to help us understand the past to protect the future. But why is it important to collect specimens in the first place? You know, Alex, I think I have someone in mind that can help us jumpstart this adventure. My name is Baird Todd, and I am the park curator. As the curator for the National Park Service, I am... Bear Todd defines himself as the custodial officer for the museum collections of the Smokies. His work is different from a curator at a formal art museum, where he would be known as an expert on a particular museum collection. But here's the kicker. Bear does not consider himself an expert. I know, I know. You may be saying to yourself, that makes no sense. Well, let me let you in on a secret. It's kind of difficult to be an expert when you manage nearly two 
million objects. But what I do do is make sure that the collections are managed in accordance with federal law and NPS policy, um, that they're preserved as well as can be with the conditions um, available, and make them as accessible to the public as much as possible. And we interpret the public pretty broadly here. That could be researchers, it could be park staff, it could be the general public, um, all to make sure that the collections are available to that, to that body of public for as long as possible, because we do manage these collections, as we say, in perpetuity. So Barrett's work is definitely driven by policy and preservation. But what is the difference between natural and cultural collections? The cultural collections are the tangible evidence of human activity, and the natural history collections are the tangible evidence of non-human activity. And that can run the gamut between vascular or non-vascular plants, insects, microbiota, and even those famous Great Smoky Mountain bears people come to see each year. The park has been able to have a diverse collection of specimens due to the research efforts dating back to the 1930s. But even the park, the size of the Smokies can be limited on space. So where does all these specimens go if they are not kept in the park for research? We have collections scattered across the country. Um, what you see now is a much more sort of controlled and, pri and prioritized, prioritized decision-making about where those collections wind up. We may get one. We may send one off to the University of Tennessee. We may send another one off to um, a university in Chicago. And that way, specimens collected at the same time as that original documentary specimen can be scattered across the country made more available for researchers, and the evidence of that original documentation can be preserved if something happens to the collection at the Smithsonian or my specimen here. There's still one at Knoxville. There's still one in Chicago. Um, a lot of the collections go back to the universities where the researcher originally was. Um, so we have a huge amount of material at the University of Tennessee, in particular at the Ten Herbarium. Um, we're close by, they've been doing research here for decades. Um, we have a large number of collections at the New York Botanical Garden. So think of it this way, whether you're in New York City to see a Broadway play, or you're in Chicago catching a famous Cubs game, Smoky Science is always around you. So natural history collections in the park are not just for show. They are a vital collection of learning, helping park rangers, scientists, and researchers keep updated data on factors such as species distribution and abundance throughout the park. But who started this important in-depth work? So my next question leads me to no one other than park archivist, Micah Day. He's gonna be our tour guide through the Collections Preservation Center located in Townsend, Tennessee a facility that holds a wealth of knowledge for the park. I am the park's librarian and archivist. Uh, I'm basically like the, the memory for the park. Um, as the librarian, I manage the library locations for the park. There's one at the Collections Preservation Center in Townsend. Uh, there's one for ranger and volunteer use in Oconalufti, and there's also one at Cades Cove. I also manage the park's collection of historic documents, 
uh, all of the maps, plans, drawings, historic photographs, um, all of the oral history collections. Uh, basically, it's all of the historic records that the park has generated and collected over the years. After our introductions, Mike takes me into the archives. There's hundreds of boxes that are slightly lit by fluorescent lighting. But it's not the number of boxes that are important here. It's the stories within them. And that really has me thinking. So Mike, what are we looking for? Well, uh, I wanted to show you the collection from Arthur Stupka, who was the park's first naturalist. He was hired in 1934 uh, when the park was just being established, and he was the park's naturalist until his retirement in the 1960s. And he was just a, he was a fascinating individual, and I just wanted to share with you some of the collection items that we have from him. According to Mike, if we could stroll down Memory Mountain, we may discover that today's collection started with good old-fashioned collecting. Going out in the twilight of the spruce fir forest, the corners of Cade's Cove, or the Firefly Fury of Elkmont, and retrieving anything that would be helpful to understanding the biodiversity of the park. And a person that we would stroll alongside would have been no one other than Arthur Stupka. Like many park rangers, Arthur spent the beginning of his career working and exploring in parks such as Yosemite and Acadia, but is mostly known for his work in the Smokies as the first naturalist of the park. According to the Webster Dictionary, a naturalist is an expert or student of natural history. Well, Arthur excelled at being a naturalist due to his astute love for being a student of nature, which ultimately turned him into an expert of the park. For one thing, I was always a journal keeper. From the time I was a, in my t early teens, I kept a nature journal when birds arrived and when flowers bloomed and things of that sort. And I kept that up right through my uh, Park Service career, at least up to about 10 years before I retired. So that for all the years I was in Acadia, plus the first 15 or 16 years I was here, I kept up a nature journal in which these things were notified. In other words, I, I always had an altimeter with me in, uh, in my knapsack. And if things were blooming at a certain date, a certain elevation, why, I would record it. And over the years, uh, at the end of the year, I would index it. In the early 1930s, Arthur imagined what could he discover if he explored the backcountry of the park? Little did he know, he would have a group of civilian conservation corps members that would help him gain access to a treasure trove of new species. And the CCC made the park much more available, not only to the ordinary visitor, but to these scientists. Because you cannot get off the trails very well uh, uh, unless you're risking being lost. And this access to the backcountry led to a trail of legacy. As I say, I was honored by having eight critters named for me. Six were insects. One was a subdivider, 
one was a mite, which is related to uh, spiders. People who had found them came to the Smokies and collected that group of animals. And among those that they found that were new and had never been described before, some of them honored me by putting my name on them. Deep in the southern part of Appalachia, the weather is cool and sunny with a slight breeze that moves across the native goldenrod. It's fall, but not just any fall. It's fall at the Appalachian Highland Science Learning Center, one of 17 research learning centers that is helping science become possible by supporting researchers who study our national parks. At 4,900 feet of elevation, I meet Paul Super. My name is Paul Super. I'm the research coordinator for the Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center and for Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Anyone who wants to conduct research in the park on uh, biological or geological uh, processes needs to apply for a research permit. As much as we enjoy having researchers help us learn more about the park, there's always a process before they start to canvas the mountains for new information. This is where the permitting process comes into play. For instance, if you are interested in collecting specimens within park boundaries, you would consult with Paul, and then Paul would consult with the curator to ensure that we can take care of the specimens that you collected. Also, it is important that Paul reviews the applications with our subject matter experts. And then, uh, most permit applications, we find a way to, uh, to permit the uh, work to go forward because we learn a whole lot from research, even if it may not be research that we started off thinking was going to be useful, it may end up being very useful in the long term. So... Can you explain how current researchers are helping us learn about the park's present and future, um, especially when it comes to, you know, new species in the park? Well, right now we still have a number of researchers working in the park who are uh, helping us with uh, biological diversity inventory. Uh, we have a researcher staying in our field station uh, right now who's studying lichen diversity uh, and has discovered uh, all sorts of previously undescribed species of lichen in the park. Uh, is also giving us an idea of uh, distribution through the park and what species might be rare, what species might be suffering from uh, decline in air quality uh, or, or other sorts of stressors. Uh, so all of that's very useful for protecting uh, the whole park. The, the ecosystem out there is not just the bears and the salamanders and the elk, uh, but also you know, a lot of these little things uh, help keep the uh, environment of the Smokies uh, beautiful and healthy. So what about, we've heard stories about, you know, new species such as the Smoky Mad Tom. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the discovery of that species and, you know, where it was discovered and how that really changed, you know, um, I wouldn't say change, but it definitely is important to the research of the park. Certainly. Um, 
you know, the Park Service has a mission to uh, protect the natural resources and the wildlife therein and to provide uh, for the general public to enjoy these resources as long as they do not uh, damage them, do not impair them. Uh, sometimes in the past we have had uh, you know, one part of that be more important than another. Uh, a long time ago, uh, the, the park had this idea that we would uh, create a world-class trout fishery, rainbow trout fishery in uh, Lower Abrams Creek. And to do that, we would remove all the uh, non-sport fish, the trash fish, uh, and uh, then you know, be a great place for the introduced rainbow trout. Well, uh, the the park went through with this and killed off, uh, poisoned out uh, the fish uh, below Abrams Falls. And uh, thankfully for us, uh, some folks from the University of Tennessee. We're looking through uh, the dead fish that uh, washed along the shore and found these little uh, catfish uh, that turned out to be a previously undescribed species, the smoky mad tom. And, uh, uh, you know, we were in a position where we might have uh, indeed been the uh, cause of the extinction of a species that was under our care. Uh, thankfully, uh, there was one other stream outside the park that was found to have the same species of catfish, and we've been able to uh, work with uh, uh, people who know how to breed uh, fish in captivity, and they've uh, helped us to reintroduce the Smoky Mad Tom back to Abrams Creek and the population's uh, recovering. But if we had not uh, had somebody uh, you know, looking through what, what washed up, uh, we wouldn't have known that we had uh, come so close to causing the extinction of a species. So this is one incredible instance of identifying an important species that was not discovered in the park before. Did this instance ignite a conscious effort with the park and community to start a program dedicated to finding new species? Well, it certainly contributed. Uh, there, the park is now over 20 years into a program called the All Taxa Biodiversity Inventory. And uh, basically what this is is an effort to figure out what we have in the park. If you are running a store or a business, you want to know what supplies you have, what uh, stock you have in the, the back in the warehouse. So uh, we're trying to protect uh, this national park and we can't protect what we don't know is there. So the All Taxa Biodiversity Inventory uh, is an effort to uh, document all of the plants and the animals and not just the, the fish and mammals and birds, but uh, all kinds of things that uh, you know, most people have never even heard of. Tardigrades, which are water bears, these wonderful eight-legged things that are uh, living on moss or, or uh, uh, slime molds or, or gastrotrix or all kinds of things that, you know, you really ought to look these up and, and uh, figure out what they are because they've got great stories. But uh, we have uh, more than doubled the number of species that are known to be in Great Smoky Mountains National Park in these 20 years plus. 
and we have found over a thousand species that uh, scientists did not realize were there. Uh, and uh, some of them have been named after all sorts of people, a senator from Tennessee, uh, Dolly Parton, a lot of them are named after the Smokies on one way or another, and some of these new species uh, are named uh, using uh, uh, Cherokee language, uh, since they're from uh, hills that are important for the Cherokee. So I have to agree with Paul. Not only does research permits help us collect important information about water bears, smoky mad times, or even species that have cultural ties to native peoples, they also help us collect stories. Stories that will inspire our next-gen scientists. Reflecting on my conversations with Paul really has me thinking, or really has me thinking about a particular question. How does the constant collecting of specimens help us manage the park? Or simply put, so what? Why do we do this? I think I know two people that can help us with this question. My name is Becky Nichols. I'm an entomologist in the park, and I've worked here for 24 years. I work primarily on aquatic insect monitoring and biodiversity studies. My name is Janie Bittner, and I am a curatorial assistant here at the park in the Natural History Collection. All right, so Becky, we've been learning about the importance of the park's natural history collections, but how does collecting specimens help us manage the park? Or simply put, so what? The Natural History Collection documents our biodiversity so that we can utilize it for various research topics and uh, learn more about uh, species distributions, how environmental factors might impact their distributions, um, various types of research questions that we can answer by looking at the data associated with specimens that we have in the collection. Now the thing is, you talked about data a little bit. And so, you know, my question for you is, you know, can we utilize the data from collecting specimens to help us with preservation or recovery of a certain species? Well, I think a great example of that would be uh, the newly federally endangered uh, rusty patched bumblebee. It was rusty patch bumblebee. Bom I've never heard of it. Bombus affinis is its Bombus scientific affinis. name. And it was just listed in 2017. And the data that we have from the park, it used to be very common in the park from low elevation to high elevation in really? various types of habitat. And we don't find it anymore. It the last specimens we, we have is from 2001. 2001. Right. So all of a sudden, this is like the whodunit mystery of the century. Like, what happened to the rusty patch bumblebee, right? Like, what's going on? So how can we figure this out? Right. Well, it's declined throughout its range. It used to range throughout the eastern U.S. And it is only in just a few locations now. Uh, probably numerous factors are involved with its decline, including climate change, habitat loss, pesticide use outside of the park, of course, um, and, and various other factors could be contributing to its decline. Um, but we still go out and search for it, 
hopefully we'll find a, a little population tucked away somewhere. Um, but we utilize the data that we have from specimens in the collection to figure out where to target our efforts to look for it. So we know where specimens from 1939 were collected. And we can go wow. back to that spot and see if potentially there's still habitat there that it would likely be in. So, you know, you get this coalition together to look for the rusty patch bumblebee, you know, in Becky's mind or because of the data, where do you go? Where do you start? What elevation? You know, tell us a little bit about that. Well, for example, this summer we had a collecting expedition. I shouldn't say collecting because we're not going to collect it if we find it. But we did go out to Andrews Bald, a high elevation site where it once used to be common. We went out there deliberately when lots of things were blooming so that bumblebees would be more likely to be found. And so we had about six people up there with nets looking around at all the blooming azaleas and uh, unfortunately didn't find it, but we did find five other species of bumblebees. So that was a good, a good find for that day. And of course, this is where Becky's sidekick, Janie, comes into the story. While Becky's story led us down the wonderful world of pollinators and their recovery, Janie's story leads us to the soil, where the life cycle and recovery of ginseng is under a microscope. I fell in love with ginseng when I first discovered that uh, it needed a great deal of protection here in the Smokies. It's a slow grower. It mainly propagates by dropping berries, which the plant doesn't put on typically until it's four years old. Wow. And at the rate it's being harvested and the rate of uh, survival when we do get it back in the ground, if it has been poached, uh, there's a 50% survival rate. It's a beautiful plant. When you come up on a mature ginseng, which can grow and age to be 50 plus years, it's a beautiful thing. Earlier in the episode, I asked a simple question. So what? Why do we do this? And I believe I have my answer. Imagine what we would lose if we did not have museum collections. We would lose the voices of past naturalists, cultures with history ingrained in the old growth forests, and one should never leave out the wondrous variety of life that has been discovered and yet to be discovered. I'm Antoine, and this is Smoky Signal.